0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I want you to just hold on to that scripture because it's going to be a little while before we get there, but that's one of the main ones that we want to look at this evening, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we're back once again to our study this evening uh, about the Holy Spirit, and our study has been based on this question, who is the Holy Spirit? And it turns out that that is a very important question because there are many who claim that they do know a great deal about the Holy Spirit but their activities show that they really don't know very much about him. And there was a time when there was uh, very little said about the Holy Spirit. Preachers would occasionally refer to him and people would mention him sometimes, but you really didn't see the, the amount of emphasis placed on the Holy Spirit in times past as we see that it's placed on him in churches today. Now, I can remember when I was growing up, that my dad, when he would preach, he would speak about the Holy Spirit. But we never got the sense that what we needed to do was just to have a big Holy Spirit meeting and get everybody stirred up and get them into into frenzy over things that the Holy Spirit does. And when I was about six years old, there was a, a Pentecostal group that set up this huge tent that was just a few hundred feet from our house. There was a big field there and They came and they set up a tent, and each night there was just all kinds of noise and loud music and things that were coming from that tent. And so one night I decided that I would sneak over there, and my dad would have killed me if he found out about that, but I sneaked over and I just raised up the flap of the tent to look inside to see what was going on. Now, I was just six years old, and I'd never seen anything like that in all of my life, I saw people that were standing up on chairs, and they were yelling and screaming. And there was this one fellow that was dressed in white from head to foot, and he had a red bandana that was tied around his neck, and he was spinning around in circles like this, just like it took a top and pulled a string on it. He was going about that fast. At that, about that fast. And there was just all kinds of crazy things that were going on in that service. Well, in those days, there weren't... A lot of churches like those that were around, you'd you'd see them every now and then. There were even some up in the hills of Kentucky where they would take out the rattlesnakes and have a snake handling service, and so they'd pass around the rattlesnakes to one another. Uh, but there's not too many. I don't not too many of the rattlesnake churches around today. I think there's still some uh, up in the hills of Kentucky and Appalachia. There's still some of those, but the Pentecostals and the and the other Charismatics they have grown and. They've moved out of those backwoods places and out of the tents, and they've moved on to Main Street. And some of the largest and fastest-growing churches that we have in America are these charismatic churches. And in other nations, as I mentioned, I think, last week or the last time we talked about this, in other nations, they have just about taken over evangelical churches. And all of them have one thing in common. They claim to have a special anointing from the Holy Spirit, And they claim that the Holy Spirit is the power behind what they do. Now, if you'll you'll pardon me, and I say this with reverence, to them, the Holy Spirit is bigger than Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the driving force behind what they do, and he's the only person of the Godhead that they dwell on, and there is very little attention that's paid to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he in these services, he just becomes an onlooker that's barely noticed. Now, of course, we do understand that the Son of God and the Holy Spirit are coexistent and they co- are co-eternal. They're equal in power and in authority. They're of the same substance. They're a part of the triune God. Both of them are, and there's no partiality between them. But there is a peculiar function... In the Godhead for the different persons of the Godhead. And, and this attitude that people have towards the Holy Spirit uh, is it, different from what the Scripture says that we ought to have. And our attitude towards the Holy Spirit, as I was growing up and heard this taught, it was different from the Pentecostals. And that's because we believe the words of Christ and what he said when the Holy Spirit would come. In John, the 16th chapter, he said, "Howbeit, it when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth... For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Well, there's a very much different attitude about the Holy Spirit today than what we read in that scripture because no longer is he reverently spoken of as the one who guides us into all truth, but now it's claimed that he's responsible for some very irreverent, outlandish, blasphemous activities. And these people say that they are working under the power of God, but they are not. Now, it's our contention that they don't know the Holy Spirit, but they're actually abusing him. So that's what we've been talking about in this fourth part of our outline, that is the Holy Spirit is abused. He is abused, but you don't really have to worry about him because he can take care of himself. Uh, What I'm doing here is just making you aware of what you need to watch out for and what the Bible has to say about this subject. Now, in our last lesson, we discussed the one overarching common characteristic of the charismatic movement, and that is the practice of speaking in tongues. And I want to continue on that thought tonight, and as I do, uh, first let me remind you of some of the discussion that we had the last time. We started in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we worked our way through a part of that chapter, through the first part, and we learned that although the charismatic movement places this, this major emphasis on speaking in tongues, we find there in the beginning of the 14th chapter that the Apostle Paul places no such emphasis upon it. Instead, he tells us that what we really need to do, and he's the one who who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gave his opinion, which is more than just an opinion because he had the mind of the Spirit writing under that inspiration. It was his teaching, not for us to go after these special miracle gifts like the gift of tongues, but rather what we should do is to covet preaching. That preaching is the main thing that the church is to do, and it always has been. That preaching is the most useful tool for building up the body of Christ. God has given us preaching. Preaching is for education, it's for uh, for edification, it's for education, it's for our nourishment. Preaching is what you can call your spiritual body builder. Preaching encourages people when they're down and it consoles them when they're hurting. And when the Word of God is preached, the Holy Spirit takes that preached Word and he applies it to the heart of the lost sinner. In fact, the Apostle Paul made that a major part of the way that a person comes to Christ. It is a major factor when he said in Romans chapter 10, how shall they believe in whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? And so whenever you have preaching, taking a backseat to tongues, then you know that you have a problem. And what's going on in the church is not the Holy Spirit's work. Secondly, we talked about confused speaking, and it would be bad enough if the tongues that were practiced today were actually what they did in New Testament times. I mean, it would be bad because it's confusing, and uh, we don't have people in our congregation that uh, are, come from countries and places where you don't understand what's being preached here. And we do have different people from different places, but all of us understand English, and that's why I preach in English. Everybody understands what I'm saying when I preach in English. Now, it wouldn't make much sense for me to get up here and preach in Korean like Catherine speaks or to preach, uh, what is the Filipino language? Uh, What's it called? Um, Tagalog? Is that right? I'm sorry? Gaelic? Oh, Gallic. I thought you said Gaelic. I said, no, that's Irish, isn't it? That can't be right. Well, anyway, whatever that is that you guys speak back there. If I was to speak in that language, you three back there, anybody else Anybody else understand it? Those three back there would understand it, but nobody else would. So it's not going to do me any good to come up here and speak in a different language that you don't understand. I mean, just because you can speak something that's different and confusing, that really doesn't mean that it's any good. Now, what the charismatic movement does is they really don't work with things that are known languages, but rather they have something that they call as an unknown language, and it's not spoken by any person in the world. Now, they're speaking something that is out of this world. I mean, it's way out of this world, in my opinion, Uh, and I don't have any problem telling you that it's not of God. It's not of this world, and it didn't originate in this world. It originates from the unseen world of darkness. Now, some preachers will that stand against the charismanian will say, well, that's a demonic spirit that does that. And some say, well, that's, uh, it's an emotional response. And others will say, well, no, it's a learned response, or at least that's a part of it. But it doesn't matter any way that you look at it, that if it's done in the church service, if it's done in the church and it's claimed to be the Holy Spirit's work, and it's not the Holy Spirit's work, then it can only have one other source. It has to be a demonic source. It does not come from God. Well, I want to move on from that because I think in the past two messages we've, we've really given enough proof that tongues that are practiced today are not the same as they were in the New Testament, and neither were those tongues in that day a normal experience for New Testament Christians. But I would still want to stay with the subject of tongues a little bit longer because I think it is important for us to understand why did the Holy Spirit give tongues in the beginning. I mean, what was the purpose of it? I mean, there are different tongues that are spoken in the New Testament, and we wouldn't want to do away with that because it's there, and neither do we want to do away with it. Now, we do know that when the Holy Spirit came, when he came on Pentecost, there was this great outpouring of the Spirit where the people did speak with tongues. Then there was a separate time that we find in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 when Cornelius and his family were saved and... People spoke with tongues, and they magnified the Lord. And we come to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and here we find the Apostle Paul dealing with the issue of tongues, really tongues that have gotten way out of hand, and they're in the category of abuse. But why is it that the Holy Spirit actually gave tongues in the first place? What was the mind of the Spirit in giving people the gift of tongues? Well, we want to look at two verses that are, well, they just really seem to be ignored when you get into this discussion, they get lost. And that's First Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. Here the Apostle Paul says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe uh, not but for them which believe. So we're going to talk about the third part here, and that is the correct instruction that we see receive from the Word of God concerning the purpose of the gift of tongues. Now, if tongues were given, and we know that they were, then what's the purpose of them? Well, Paul says here that they are for a sign. Well, if they're for a sign, then what does the sign mean? Well, we know what signs are, and we know what signs do. Many of you probably remember the old Yardbird store that was up here on Commerce that they tore down a few years ago. Well, they tore down that store, but for a time, the sign was still up. And you'd go up there and you'd see the Yardbird sign, but there was no building there. It was gone. Well, when the building was torn down, they didn't need the sign anymore. And when we think about tongues, they were given as a sign, but for who and what time was that sign given? Now, we notice here that the Apostle Paul goes back to the Scriptures, and he had the Old Testament Scriptures to deal with, and this thing is talked about in the Old Testament. So he says, "...in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord." Now, that's a quotation from Isaiah 28, verse 11. There it says, "...for with stammering lips..." And another tongue will he speak to this people. Now we have to find out then what is the relationship between Isaiah 28 verse 11 and what Paul has to say about the gift of tongues and or the Bible says about the gift of tongues in Acts 2 and in Acts chapter, 4, uh, ch- uh, chapter 10 and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What is the connection? If the Apostle Paul quotes that Old Testament scripture, why does he put it in this place in 1 Corinthians and talks to this church about it? Well, what we need to do is to go back and look at the history of Israel and see why did God say this back in the book of Isaiah. When we were in Israel a few years ago, we had a tour director that was really consumed with history, and he loved to walk around old uh, archaeological sites and just go through piles of rubble. I mean, I've never seen so many rocks in all my life as when we were there going through all these different places. But it was really intensely interesting to go there and just see the different things in the Bible lands and to go through those places. And one of the places that we visited was an area that I preached about just a few weeks ago in uh, the study of Matthew. We went up to the far northern part of Israel to the city of Dan. And uh, that's that's the farther farthest northern part of Israel. It's the same area where Mount Hermon is. That's where Caesarea Philippi is. And um, it's really just a beautiful spot there. And, And that's the place where we think where it's most likely that the transfiguration of Christ took place. Now, in the city of Dan, that was really one of the worst of the Israelite cities for idolatry. There's a place there where the throne of Jeroboam the second stood. And Jeroboam was a very wicked king. It was a prosperous king, but he was a very wicked one. And he was notorious for mixing up the worship of Jehovah with the worship of these pagan gods. Sitting right there next to his throne in the city of Dan was one of the symbols of their pagan gods. In Dan, there's also a high altar where they made heathen sacrifices. And as you stand on the platform where that altar was, you're right in the shadow of Mount Hermon. Well, when Isaiah spoke these words in chapter 28, verse 11, he prophesied that God would bring judgment upon Israel. Now, Isaiah, if you've read the book, uh, you'll know that Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, but he also spoke out against the idolatry that was taking place in the northern kingdom kingdom, and that was in Israel. And so Isaiah spoke to the people, but the problem was he spoke and God spoke, but nobody was listening to what they said. And so God said, I'm going to get their attention. I will send them another people. I will send them other messengers. They will not hear my prophets, and so I'll send them messengers with another message that hearing they will hear, but they won't understand it And even though they don't understand what's being said, they'll get the message anyway. And so you know what God did? He sent the Assyrian army. And they were cruel, and they were barbaric, and they spoke a different language. They spoke a language that Israel could not understand, but they got the message anyway. So what were the tongues for? Why did God give those? Well, they are a sign, first of all, they are a sign of judging the Jews, God took their kingdom away, and he judged Israel by forcing them into captivity to a foreign power. And so they were around people that spoke a different tongue. They were around a lot of different tongue talkers then. Well, Later, the same thing happened to Judah. Judah wouldn't listen either. And so the Babylonians came, and they overran them, and they destroyed the temple in the holy city of Jerusalem. And when the Jews returned from the captivity some years later, they had no temple, and they had no city walls. And 150 years after they had returned, Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and he was distressed and he was upset by what he saw in Israel. He said this in Nehemiah 13, in those days also saw I the Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews language, but according to the language of each people. Now, the Jewish people had been around these foreigners. They had intermarried with them. The Jewish children, their mothers and their fathers, they would intermarried with all of these different peoples so that they no longer knew how to speak the Hebrew language. And that was a judgment from God. I mean, this whole language situation was all mixed up, and it was painful because of Israel's sin. Well, we fast forward from Isaiah in the Old Testament to the time of the New Testament And now we find the Jews are back in Jerusalem. It's been 400 years since word had come from God. And so God raised up John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And it was John's job to point out Christ and to prepare them for Christ's ministry. Now, I probably don't really need to rehearse to you what happened to Jesus. He was rejected by his own countrymen. After three years of public ministry, And after having given them undeniable signs that he was the king and that he was the Messiah, people still would not believe. Only handfuls of people believed in Jesus. So they took him and they shamelessly beat him and they crucified him. Then they put him in a tomb and three days later he came out of the tomb. Now we go to the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 disciples that were gathered in the upper room. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, the Bible says, as a mighty rushing wind. And the Holy Spirit descended like cloven tongues as of fire, and he sat on those people. And when he did, they began to speak in many different languages. And then after that, Peter preached his amazing sermon on that day of Pentecost where he rehearsed the history of Israel, and he reiterated the fact that what Israel had done, they had crucified the Messiah. They had crucified the Lord Christ. So what should the Jews have gathered from that unusual event that had just taken place of the speaking in tongues? What they should have seen and known was that judgment was coming. Just like judgment fell in the Old Testament by Israel's rejection of Jehovah, judgment would come again because Israel had rejected Jesus Christ. A Jehovah God had come in the flesh And he was that great prophet. He was the priest. He was the king, the king of the entire universe. But they took him and they hung him on a cross. Now, 600 years before that time, God's judgment was the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And in AD 70, God brought judgment again. And it was a repeat of what had happened 600 years ago. This time it happened under the Roman general Titus. His armies came in and they destroyed uh, the temple uh, there in Jerusalem, and the city was burned. And Jesus had predicted that because when he was with the disciples, he pointed at the temple, and he said to them, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so they destroyed the temple, the city was burned, and the Jews were dispersed. And it wasn't until a little over 60 years ago that Israel became a nation again after all of that time. So Pentecost and the tongues, that was a wake-up call to Israel. Now, what the Charismatics do is they quote Isaiah 28, verse 11, and they apply that to the great movement of the Spirit upon people today, but they don't read enough of the Old Testament to find out what it's all about. Now, I'd like you to turn to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to take a look at this and read just a little bit more about it. They don't read enough. They never take the whole counsel of God. And so they never get to the real preaching of the truth. So in Isaiah chapter 28, we're going to start before verse 11. And we look here at verse number 8. Isaiah 28, verse number 8. Now the prophet Isaiah is giving God's words to the people. And he says, For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no place clean. Now that's a pretty good start, isn't it? This gives you an idea that you're about to get an earful about these wonderful tongues that they want to talk in. Isaiah says, For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, That they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Now, there, that's your wonderful tongues. And God followed that up with judgment in the New Testament. So these tongues were given as a sign to Israel that God's judgment has come because of their rejection of Christ. Now, I would ask you do we still need that sign today? Do we still need a sign that says that God is going to bring a judgment upon the Jewish people? Well, the judgment has already come. That judgment, the judgment of tearing down the walls of Jerusalem, destroying the temple, that already happened. So do we still need to warn Israel about judgment? Well, the next time that we read about Israel in the New Testament is that we come to the tribulation time. And there God chooses 12,000 out of each of the tribes of Israel, 144,000 that become his special witnesses. And those witnesses go out to the other people in Israel and millions of Jews get saved during the tribulation time. And then the next event that we come to is the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ as he comes to rule and reign on this earth from the throne of David. And as we've taught about that in the book of Revelation, that is a kingdom that is primarily Jewish in character. Now, what we find in Scripture, that 1 Corinthians was written prior to 70 A.D. And there are no books of the Bible that were written after 70 A.D. that refer in any sense, in any way, to the gift of tongues. And that's because the sign had been given. And the time for that sign was gone. And so there was no need for a sign to be given to Israel again. Now we go on then. What other events might be signified by tongues? Well, secondly, it's a sign of accepting the Gentiles. And when God judged the Jews, he did something else. He opened up the way for Gentiles. Now speaking in the tongues of many different uh, nations was a sign that the gospel could be freely preached to Gentiles. That God was no longer working through just one nation of the world, but now any person that hears the gospel of Christ, anybody on the planet, on planet earth, who hears the gospel of Christ and believes that can be saved. Now listen to Romans 11, where Paul uh, discusses how that Israel had rejected Christ. He writes there, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And there he's referring to the Jews, the fall of the Jews. He says, God forbid But rather, through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. And so interestingly, the gift of tongues was repeated in that amazing passage of Acts chapter 10. And that's where Peter had the dream of the great sheet that was let down from heaven. And in that sheet, there were all kinds of different animals, unclean animals. And those animals were symbolic of the Gentile nation. Now, Peter wasn't too crazy about preaching to Gentiles, but he got the picture through that vision that God was going to do something spectacular through the Gentiles. And so at the same time that he was having that vision, Cornelius, the Gentile centurion, was in Caesarea, and God was working in his heart, and he told Cornelius to send some people to Joppa to fetch Peter. And so they went, and they arrived at just the time that Peter had finished up that vision and he, uh, he had seen the sheep, he'd seen the animals, and he was just wondering, what could this mean? Why did God give me this kind of vision? And these fellows showed up at Peter's door at exactly that time, and God said to Peter, go with them. And so Peter went. And Peter went to Caesarea, and there he found Cornelius. And Cornelius had called his wife and his kids and his grandpa and his grandma and Aunt Sally and Uncle Remo and the whole bunch... And they got all their friends and they gathered uh, gathered them in and Peter began to preach them. They were all waiting for Peter to come. So Peter got there, he preached to them, and while he was preaching, do you know what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on them and they began to speak in tongues just like it happened on the day of Pentecost. Now the Jews that had accompanied Peter were surprised by that. And they saw that the Gentiles spoke in tongues and they commented on this, that this thing happened just like what happened at Pentecost. Now, that had nothing to do with judgment. It was a sign, but not a sign of judgment. It was a sign that when the gospel is preached to Gentiles, they may also believe and be saved. So who is it assigned to? Well, once again, it's assigned to the Jews. Only this time it's not assigned to unsaved Jews, but it's a sign to save ones. Now, the first time it was a sign to those Jewish leaders that had rejected and crucified Christ, and this time it's a sign to Jewish church leaders who had rejected Gentiles as candidates for the gospel of Christ. So what happened? Well, if you look in your Bible there at Acts chapter 11, the Jews back home had heard what had happened, that Peter had gone to preach to Gentiles, and they weren't very pleased about it. I mean, the Gentiles were uncircumcised. The Gentiles were dogs. They were filthy pig eaters. And so these Jews wanted no part of casting their pearls before swine. Now notice the beginning of chapter 11. And the apostles and brethren, and notice carefully again, apostles, the apostles and brethren that were in Judea, heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem... They that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest in to men uncircumcised, and didst eat with them. So they weren't very happy about this. In verse number 4, it says, But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning, and expounded it by order unto them. So Peter went back through the whole story, from the trance to the trip, And he told them how it all worked out and how God told him to go. And he did what God said. And when he did and when he preached, the Holy Spirit showed up. Now look at verse number 15. Peter says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. So do you see the sign? It had a purpose then. It had a purpose For these Jews, for the apostles, some of them were the apostles that heard the report from Peter. It was a sign to them. Now, are we busy today trying to convince anyone that God will save Gentiles? 99.9% of all the people that have been saved in the last 2,000 years have been Gentiles. So do we need a sign that tells people that Gentiles can be saved? Well, no, we don't need a sign like that because it's evident that the time for that sign is gone. We don't need anything like that anymore. And so we wonder then, why do the charismatics use a sign that's no longer needed? Do we still need directions to yard birds? Well, you go up there, there's nothing there. If there was a sign, there's nothing there. And the same thing that happens when you go to one of these charismatics meetings, when you, when you hear them shouting and, and going through all their tongue-talking, Don't be concerned about it because there's nothing to see. There's nothing there. Tongues are not for today. They don't have a purpose for today. Their purpose was in a bygone era, and God doesn't want us messing with something that he ended himself 2,000 years ago. But what has God done? Well, God's left us the Bible. He's left us the Word, and so he says to us now, preach the Word what was it that Paul told Timothy about preaching? He said, Timothy, if you want to show that you are really a Holy Spirit-filled preacher, then you need to get a big building. And you need to get yourself a tent. And you need to get yourself a guy in a white suit with a red bandana around his neck. And you just need to have a rocking good time. You need to go in there and you need to set up a whole stage of house fans And speak into those fans and blow it out on the people and slay the people in the spirit. But most of all, Timothy, the thing that you really need to do is you need to brush up on your tongues. You need to get ready to go because the most effective thing that you can do to win people to Christ is to show them that you can speak in tongues. You just wait until they hear all of these things that they can't possibly understand. And you'll be so amazed at how many people come to Christ because you can speak in tongues by something that nobody has any idea what you're saying. And so he says, Timothy, this will do the trick. Don't forget the tongues. Don't forget to speak in tongues. That's what will do the most good. Well, you know I'm being facetious about the whole thing. Paul never said anything like that to Timothy. If tongues were so important and that was the main thing that Christians are to do, that's exactly what he would have told Timothy to do but he never said a word of that to Timothy, but he did say this. He said, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Now, how do I know that the tongue's movement is not of God? Well, where's the word? Where's the reproof? Where's the rebuke? Where's the long-suffering? Where's the exhortation for people to come to Christ? Where's the doctrine that's found in it? The answer, absent, 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 absent. You won't find any of that in the tongues movement. And then I ask, where are the unbelieving Jews that need to see a sign? And where are the unbelieving apostles that didn't know about the Gentiles? Where are they so they can receive the sign? well, they're no longer here and it's no longer necessary. And so if the Holy Spirit is not in it, then we have to ask who is in it? Paul answers that question and no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Now, I know that there are preachers that are much more charitable on this subject than I. And, um, You know, I I, I worry about these people's souls. I really do. But I'm not going to give in to their doctrine. I'm not going to give them a break on doctrine because they believe all these crazy things. I have enough concern for them to preach against that doctrine. Now, the charismatic movement has swept evangelicalism and has left in its wake many destroyed lives. And you may look at that from the outside and you say, Wow, those people sure are excited about things. They sure are all geared up about their worship. And what you don't know, if you haven't investigated, what you don't know is that there are a lot of burned out, unfulfilled people there. There are a lot of people that have tried to keep up with the show because they think that there was something really there and there's nothing there at all that helps them spiritually. It's devoid of any spiritual life whatsoever. And so the charismatic leaves in its wake or the charismatic movement leaves people that are just hollow and empty. There is no spirit there at all. So why would we ever want to facilitate such a terrible error? You know what God says? He says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. That's what God expects us to do. Take the word of God and find out the truth, and then reprove and rebuke those that are doing these false practices. Well, there's a whole lot more to say about this. I mean, there's a lot more that just gets dragged into this. And the next time, we're going to go a little bit further into 1 Corinthians 14. And what I want to show you next time is how that things get out of order when false claims are made about the Holy Spirit. Now, did you know that it's the Holy Spirit that directs our worship? Anybody here that's surprised to find out that the Holy Spirit directs our worship? You're not surprised by that. But what happens if there is another spirit that directs the worship? Well, you've got big problems then. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit about that. What happens when there is another spirit that directs the worship? What happens in a church when that spirit is there? We're going to talk about that next week. So more on the subject next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had to spend in your word tonight. And these are important things. Uh, the, the, it's, it's important for us to know, and Lord. We want the truth of Your Word for us to uh, study out and to find that truth, and then preach it to people so they'll clearly understand who Jesus is, what He did, and what the purpose of uh, what the Holy Spirit does in our lives as well. We want to know who the Holy Spirit is and how He works in our lives correctly. How, how do we know? How do we get the correct instruction about what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world today? Thank you, Lord, for this, and we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California,